Welcome to 2024. With the 2024 election on the horizon, the wars in Gaza and Ukraine, and numerous other foreign policy and domestic news stories, it's never been more important to stay informed. The DSR Network has you covered, with experts across all of these stories, to bring you the analysis and commentary of the stories that matter. Later this month, the DSR Network will introduce the TNR Daily, featuring Greg Sargent, formerly of the Washington Post, and a close friend of the show. Don't miss a moment of our coverage. Become a member of the DSR Network today. Members receive exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to attend DSR live events, a members-only Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and more. For the month of January, receive 50% off your first year of membership. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DSR2024 at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code DSR2024. Thank you for your support. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and uh, welcome to DSR. Welcome to the Spy Show. It's that time of the week again to talk about intelligence issues, which we do on a regular basis with my partner in crime here, Mark Polymeropoulos. How are you doing today, Mark? I'm doing well. You know, it's a cold and kind of rainy, dreary day in D.C. I was getting a little kind of depressed and then I realized it is 35 days until pitchers and catchers report for spring training. And my mood has improved dramatically, not only because we're doing this podcast together, but because baseball is around the corner. Yes, that that always uh, lifts my spirits, and I see a Red Sox T-shirt, uh, and I'm sure you'd be happy if the Red Sox did anything to improve their team over the summer, over the winter. But they haven't done that. They just seem to be trading away. Yeah, sorry, sorry about sorry, sorry about that. Uh, well, you know, there's another bit of consolation here, and that is the days are slowly getting longer again. So that's a that's a positive. Um, today, we've got a great conversation in store. We are joined by Colin Clark, who's a senior research fellow at the SUFAN Center. He's the director of research at the SUFAN Group, where his research focuses on domestic and transnational terrorism, international security, and geopolitics. Uh, welcome, Colin. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah, well, why don't we start with Mark? Why, you know, uh, why don't you start with the first question? Sure. First, first, it's a it's a delight to have Colin on. Colin and I have this weird kind of partnership um, where we appear together on MSNBC every week. It seems on Andrew Mitchell's show. I think they've taken the bookers have taken a liking to kind of the the I guess the yin and the yang. Colin is certainly far smarter than I am uh, on this on the subject we're going to talk about today, which is uh, terrorism. And let me just say before I jump in the question, uh, the first question that Colin is very happy, I'm sure, because his Steelers are in the playoffs. That's right. Correct. In Mason, we trust. Correct. All right, let's. <laughs> that's right. Um, we we're joking before uh, beforehand. I guess in Pittsburgh on Sundays the streets are quiet. Um, it is a sports town. But okay, let's let's jump right into this because I think last week saw something that was really interesting. There was a uh, there was a rather significant terrorist attack um, in Iran, 
And immediately, right off the bat, a lot of folks were uh, accusing Israel of this. And, and of course, with, with a, a concern about regional escalation. But Colin, both yourself and, and I will just in a very rare moment say uh, I, I did as well. Uh, many of us in this kind of in the counterterrorism community said that doesn't make a lot of sense. It's, it's more likely ISIS. So talk a little bit about this. It's a pretty brutal attack in Iran. What does it mean? And, and then talk about what's the state of ISIS today. Um, because I think that, you know, with, with so many things happening in Ukraine, so many things, of course, going on with Hamas in Israel and Gaza, we don't talk about a pretty barbaric terrorist group that caused a lot of problems, not just for the U.S., but for the world just only several years ago. Yeah. So the attack, I think, caught a lot of people off guard, but uh, not folks that watched the ISIS beat closely. And there was a lot of kind of, you know, as Twitter is, is prone to, wild accusations and kind of, you know, disinformation and all sorts of stuff. But those that follow the group closely, you know, pretty early on had a good feeling that this was the Islamic State based on the TTPs, based on the target, uh, based on growing capabilities, particularly of Islamic State Khorasan province in Afghanistan. And Iran has been a target of ISIS before. Look, ISIS, more than I think any other terrorist group in recent memory, really makes its bones on sectarianism, right? Uh, and so in some cases, even more than uh, you know, the Israelis and the Americans, the focus of the Islamic State has been on the Shia, uh, on, on what they call the Rafida or apostates. And so that's uh, part and parcel of a, a big piece of Islamic State's propaganda. It's uh, aimed to recruit new members uh, and really it's morale, these, the ability to launch these spectacular attacks. Uh, you know, these kind of accusations that it was Israel, no serious person, you, you know, kind of looked at this and thought this uh, was the Israelis. The Israelis do uh, operate in Iran. They do so covertly. They do so through uh, more targeted assassinations of Iranian nuclear scientists, uh, high-ranking Al-Qaeda members. Uh, but this, this, you know, from the jump start, did not look anything like the Israelis. Now, a couple of other Sunni groups that operate in Iran, a group formerly known as Jandula, uh, and then potentially, you, you know, Mech, this kind of odd group, you know, could they have the motive, the capabilities, maybe, but really early on, we were thinking, you know, this is ISIS, this is uh, likely Islamic State Khorasan. So, you know, I'd say writ large, the Islamic State ebbs and flows. It's, it's uh, a collection of provinces at this point. And I think traditional ISIS, as we know it, uh, the group in Iraq and Syria is, is arguably at an adir. Uh, it's certainly not extinguished. Uh, they control territory in the central Badia desert in Syria and other bits and pieces. We still haven't figured out what to do with these uh, you know, camps where we've got all sorts of women, children, and male fighters in northeastern Syria. Uh, and there's been multiple prison breaks and attempts to get those fighters out. Uh, and then I think if you look across the world, you know, big Islamic State pre presence in Africa and the Sahel uh, and I'd say the Afghanistan branch, ISKP, is the most concerning group to me. It reminds me, Mark, if you think back to the way AQAP was uh, in the mid-2000s, mid to late 2000s, kind of the most uh, frisky of all al-Qaeda groups, probably the most capable, pretty relentless in you know, launching attacks even when they were disrupted. So that, to me, is what ISKP looks like now, plus no eyes and ears for us after pulling out of Afghanistan. Um, so really a kind of, uh, I'd say a mixed bag when we look across the world at what ISIS is looking like in early 2024. Well, let me ask a follow-up question because um, there is also a, a, you know, current events context, right? There's a war going on between Israel and Gaza. 
Um, and that war um, seems to have a number of sort of aspects to it, which could um, create opportunities or problems uh, in the area of, of, of you know, terrorism. Uh, you, you could have groups like this seeking to exacerbate the conflict between Israel and Iran because it's in their interests. Uh, Tony Blinken is in the region right now meeting with regional partners um, and seeking to find a way to work with them to solve this problem. And uh, clearly, uh, you know, to the extent to which those relationships end up being successful, strengthened, uh, that's not in the interests of some of these terrorist groups, and they might uh, take umbrage to that. Uh, and then finally, of course, the the death toll in Gaza uh, has, uh, you know, exactly the profile that we've seen in other places for creating new terrorists um, and creating new terrorist threat. How do you see um, uh, uh, the Israel-Gaza situation impacting uh, the activities of groups like those you just enumerated. Yeah, really interesting dynamics at play here because um, Ten Seven has had the effect of galvanizing groups across the terrorist landscape, including groups like ISIS and Al Qaeda, who have traditionally denigrated Hamas. They say Hamas isn't a real jihadist group. They sit for elections. They work with a Shia country in Iran. They're not legit, right? They Groups like ISIS and al-Qaeda look down upon Hamas. At the same time, they're more than happy to take advantage of this chaos, to use it to uh, bring new members into the fold, to you know, sow chaos and destruction. I think um, they also benefit because our eyes are elsewhere. Um, you know, There's long been this kind of shift underway from counterterrorism to so-called great power competition, which I think is a, probably a whole episode in and of itself in the sense that I don't think we really understand how those two can operate together. We look at them as kind of one or the other when I think there's a lot of overlap there. Um, but but really at the end of the day, 10-7 uh, has had this galvanizing effect. So when you look across the region at the so-called axis of resistance, there's these real second order effects and dynamics that I think we haven't discussed enough. We're seeing it play out right now in Iraq, for example. So um, with the US now targeting some of the Iraqi Shia militia groups, there's growing pressure domestically within Iraq to evict U.S. forces. Now, if that pressure reaches a boiling point, and you know that Tehran is instigating this behind the scenes and actually happens, what happens to the ISIS threat when we have no U.S. troops kind of overseeing that mission in Iraq? Does that spread to, you know, Syria? But no one's talking about that. We're looking, you know, and rightfully so, we've got a full plate at the Houthis in Yemen, uh, at Lebanese Hezbollah in the northern front with Israel. Uh, at Hamas and Palestine Islamic Jihad, right, at issues in the West Bank. So to me, this is really kind of, um, I'd say, a crisis point in in our Middle East policy. Um, and I think, you know, the administration certainly has its hands full because it's unclear, you know, which threat is going to metastasize and pop off next. And, you know, this tit for tat that we've been doing, you know, the Israelis are killing Hezbollah commanders, Hezbollah shooting rockets into Israel. Um, you know, all it takes is one miscommunication or miscalculation for this to spill over more broadly into the region. So I, I think right now, just I see threat threats coming from multiple vectors, uh, and it's concerning. Can I can I ask a quick follow up, Mark? Is that okay with you? Sure, of course. Um, I I sort of 
here a subtext to what you're saying, um, which is getting out of Afghanistan left us without eyes and ears and not having troops on the ground in some places may make it harder to respond to this. Uh, and so the implication I get from that is that, you know, we need to have a, a redefined presence in the region. Uh, and, I, and, and at the same time, of course, you know, a lot of people listen to this and go, oh, my God, you know, this is Michael Corleone and the Godfather saying every time I try to get out, it pulls me back in again, right? Oh, I got to use that. Um, future, and, 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 <laughs> uh, the, you know, the, 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 you know, they're like, no, this is why we're leaving. This is always going on there. There's no way to solve this. And the, the, you know, let's leave it to them to work out for themselves. How, you know, you, you say the administration's got a conundrum. I think that's the conundrum. How, do, how would you address it? Yeah, well, I think, you know, this is a region where our adversaries understand strength. They, uh, and they also look at weakness in a way that uh, leads them to become more brazen. I think Iran is more brazen now than at any point since the 1980s. Uh, and a lot of that is because of perceived weakness. In some cases, we've done the Iranians a huge favor. I mean, between taking out Saddam and, I guess, putting the Taliban on the shelf for 20 years, two of Iran's immediate adversaries, we took care of for them. Uh, and they kind of went throughout building this proxy network throughout the region. I think it's a, it's a careful balance that the administration and the U.S. across administrations has to strike. We have to have a presence in the Middle East. Uh, we don't want to be involved in kind of uh, conventional war as we were throughout, uh, you know, 20 years of the GWAT, this kind of, you know, growing irregular warfare, asymmetric. We've got special operations troops in places that we need them. We've got bases uh, in, in places where we need them. So to cut bait and just totally pull back, I think would be inviting our adversaries to move into that power vacuum. Uh, it's a, it's a very tough needle to thread between kind of having a deterrent force and, and one that we're willing to use and to show people that, no, we, we aren't going to kind of cut and run, but at the same time, not overcommitting, not, you know, that that's one concern I have about the Israelis in Gaza right now is mission creep. You know, do they end up staying and for much longer than they you know expect to, than they want to? Do they kind of get dragged along? Um, you know, I mean, look, the Israelis went into Lebanon, southern Lebanon in 1982. They stayed for 18 years. That's one of the classic cases of mission creep, along with the U.S. and Vietnam, Soviets in Afghanistan, et cetera. Um, I, I look at the Middle East as, a, you know, the, the real potential for something like that, unintended consequences. So uh, it's hard. I'm not going to say it's easy. Uh, the administration has a difficult road ahead, but they've got to get this right. It's it's critically important. Mark. So, you know, this the conversation is, is these are always fascinating uh, for me because I look back on my career and most of it was in counterterrorism. But as someone who's an operations officer, um, you know, uh, I think I was fortunate because my question to headquarters, you know, whether I was running a unit in the field, you know, I'm running some specialized units that that was that were designed um, to to kind of remove uh, Al Qaeda and others from the battlefield. But I always just would ask the question, just give me targets. You know, I, I, we did not I was not having the debate like we're having now. I was the at the at the, you know, the, the pointy tip of the spear. And so it was actually easier. Oh, just, you know, give me the target list. And then uh, and so I'm not going to talk about more of these existential questions on, on what we should and shouldn't do. And now 
it's interesting for me, you know, in, in kind of public life, you know, these are the, these are the questions that I have to address. And it, it certainly is, Colin is in both David, you both said it's, it's quite challenging for the administration. You know, in essence, there's a six front war right now. Um, pretty extraordinary uh, task, but I'm going to, I'm going to put you in an awkward position uh, uh, and just say, let, let's say you were David Barnea, you know, head of Mossad now. And so obviously that's an opera, he has an operational um, task at hand, but he also is in essence, an intelligence advisor to the prime minister. What would what should Israel's strategy be in, in Gaza? And because I think a lot of us, when we hear that you know the words eradicating Hamas, nobody takes this seriously. What they really and you talk to Israelis privately in this national security world, it's you know of course no, they want to degrade Hamas to an extent they can't carry out a ten seven again. But if if you are in charge in some type of you know uh, position in the Israeli national security establishment, what would you be advising? What should they do? So let me start with the eradicate Hamas, because I've been critical of this as well, because I do think that words matter. Um, there was a time, you know, when I was at Rand and I was doing work for uh, for the Pentagon, where we talked a lot about strategic communication, right, aligning words and deeds uh, and why that's really important. Um, so I do think it's about degrading. I mean, even the Israelis themselves for a long time have used this term mowing the grass, Right. Um, you know, it's a euphemism, but you kind of understand what it means. It's a threat we've got to take care of. We understand we're not going to be able to fully extirpate Hamas, Hezbollah, but we've got to manage the threat. Um, you know, and far be it from me, it's certainly not my place to to advise uh, an intelligence chief. But I think I, I see myself more as an observer of, of what's happening um, and an analyst. And so I, I see two, you know, two scenarios. One is the current scenario. It's the approach um, that the Israelis are, are uh, you know, conducting at the moment. So a heavy air campaign, um, some would argue bordering on collective punishment, much less risk to the IDF, even though they are taking casualties, right? But through, through less risk, uh, it's driving up civilian casualties, which in turn is increasing support for Hamas. Hamas knows this full well. That's why they do it, right? They know that a lot of civilians are going to die. Uh, they don't care. They're certainly not mourning these deaths because they're benefiting from them. That's the whole point of hiding among the civilian population. The other option is a far more targeted uh, approach, fewer airstrikes, um, more risk to the IDF, but less civilian casualties, also less popular support for Hamas. And so at the end of the day, it's kind of balancing the pros and cons of each approach and trying to project what the end game is there, which scenario is you know, likely to lead to less support for this terrorist group over the long run. Um, you know, there's Israelis I talk to that say, no matter what we do, we're going to get criticized. So we're going to go in there and we're going to do what we think is necessary, even if there's significant blowback. Um, and I think, you know, this, the, uh, the you know, the, the attack of 10-7 was intended to draw significant blowback. I think it's, you know, to evoke a, almost a revenge, right? A bloodlust from the Israeli side that Hamas could then frame as, oh, look, you know, we're the victims, even though they precipitated this whole conflict by the attack. So really complicated situation. I think the Israelis have a choice. Um, and I just wonder, you know, if Netanyahu is looking out for himself or if he's looking out for the country of Israel. Okay, so... Uh, you, you've described the situation ext extremely well. Um, let's zero in on a particular part of it, um, uh, and and that is Hezbollah and Lebanon. Uh, 
and and what's going on there because there does seem to be a, a, a turning up of activity there on the part of the Israelis to the point that some people are asking questions like, is this a wag the dog scenario? You know, is Netanyahu saying, let's exacerbate this so that, um, you know, it, because the longer the war goes on, the longer he's in office, right? He's got a challenge on the far side of this. Um, how do you see um, the situation with Lebanon and Hezbollah playing out? You know, the conventional wisdom right now uh, is that Hezbollah doesn't want a conflict. And if you study Nasrallah's speeches closely like I do, there's these little tells in there where he's very kind of precise with his language of what Hezbollah will respond to and what it won't respond to. Uh, but I'm also, you know, very cautious because the conventional wisdom on Hamas is what led us to 10-7, right? And so if we're sitting around and we're complacent that, well, Hezbollah, they don't really want a war. Uh, the Iranians really don't want to use Hezbollah and that you know force of 150,000 rockets that have been stockpiled unless it's a direct threat to the Iranian regime. You know, I think this is a time now more than ever to question our assumptions or re-question our assumptions. Uh, you know, Hezbollah is not Hamas. It's a far more capable organization. It's an organization with global reach. And if the Iranians really wanted to activate Hezbollah, they could in Europe, in you know, South America, potentially in North America. Um, you know, uh, I've been talking about what what could that look like? I mean, go back to Argentina and the AMIA bombings, right? Uh, in the 1990s, the, the Burgos bus bombing in Bulgaria. There's a lot of capability there by Hezbollah. Uh, and so I think it's a completely different conflict should that happen. Uh, and I think it's probably the worst case scenario. When I look across the list of Iranian proxies, I'm most concerned about Hezbollah's capabilities. Uh, the Houthis, very chippy, you know, very active, not super accurate, thankfully, uh, but also, you know, a huge threat because of their willingness uh, to keep pushing the envelope and to keep escalating. Uh, you know, I was joking with a friend the other day. I said, I don't know if the Houthis are terrible. These guys don't really seem to care that much. Uh, but of course, that's, you know, the job of, of DOD is to figure out um, how to deter these actors. Yeah. Um, Mark. So, you know, I think you raised something really important, uh, Colin, about Hezbollah, and it's someone who has worked counterterrorism, you know, my whole career. Hezbollah, let's not forget, was the A-team of kind of the terrorism world before Al-Qaeda. Um, uh, obviously, it caused, you know, it killed scores of Americans, um, killed our station chief, tortured our station chief in, in Beirut. Um, there's a lot of memories, certainly in the U.S. national security community, of what Hezbollah uh, can do, not just in, in terms of, a, you know, a conflict uh, along the, in the north with Israel, but but as a global terrorist entity. So I think you're right that it, it's something to be taken seriously. And and I commend you for talking about the need not to, um, ha you know, to perhaps have some humility in our assessments, because nobody uh, uh, thought Hamas would, in essence, launch a terrorist army um, at, at over of about 3,000 operatives. Uh, uh, against Israel, but let me let me flip to something that's that has interested me so much in the national security space, and I have pleaded with kind of friends and colleagues um, from the Washington Post, the New York Times, to MSNBC, to Fox, to anybody. There has been a lack of reporting on kind of what I think is really important, and that is the bilateral intelligence relationships that Israel shares um, with its with its Arab uh, allies, um, and because I think when you look at fundamentally 
you know, where the region is now. There's been, you know, the State Department assessments saying that, you know, that this is, this is, you know, the U.S. policy towards Israel, support towards Israel is going to set back kind of the U.S. relationship with the Arab world for decades. I don't believe that um, because I think that one thing that hasn't broken is these intelligence ties that Israel shares for Jordan, with example. And I, I say this because I, you know, I served in the region. I worked with the Israeli uh, intelligence services, the Palestinians. I've been to Ramallah. I've met with the Palestinian uh, intelligence. Um, I, I served in Egypt. Um, uh, and so, you know, so, so I, and I know the relationships that Israel enjoys with these countries. And I would argue that, for example, um, you know, Jordan's security umbrella is not the United States, it's Israel. Um, and, and that these countries likely are still cooperating together on what? On Hamas. And so you have kind of the, the outward rhetoric from King Abdullah and others, um, yet probably the Jordanian General Intelligence Directorate and Mossad and Shin Bet are still cooperating. So what is your sense on that? You know, has there been a fraying of ties? If you really want to look at the region, if things are really a crisis, these are, this is what I think we should look at. I have not seen any reporting on it. What's your, uh, what's your notion? Well, one, I think you're completely right that it's underreported on and it's fascinating. And it's also, I think, a critical linchpin to these relationships. So there was just a piece in the New York Times this morning saying, you know, Secretary Blinken is urging, uh, you know, closer ties between Israel and Arab nations, right? He's saying that's going to be one of the things that helps us solve the conflict in Gaza. But as you note, those relationships are already strong at the bilateral intelligence level in many cases. In fact, some would argue in some of these countries that's where it's strongest. Uh, and we see that with the deal on hostages, right, with the Israelis meeting with the Qataris and the Egyptians brokered by who, who other than Bill Burns, right? I mean, the U.S. Uh, director of the CIA. So I think these relationships are strongest in some cases at that level. The further up you go up the chain where you have kind of heads of states and that's where kind of uh, diplomacy, you know, kicks in. Uh, there's a lot of kind of double talk. Uh, so there's what leaders say to assuage the so-called Arab street, and then there's what they actually believe in private. And that's another kind of duality that I think is at play here. Uh, that's been something that's always been difficult to manage. But when you have, you know, a crisis like this, where you have so many civilians killed, uh, it's there's real pressure on these leaders in the region. Um, to save face with their populations, right? And not be seen as a kind of lackey for the Israelis. Um, I still think that Saudi-Israeli normalization is, is um, even if it's on the shelf, I think it's going to move forward at some point. I think the Saudis really want it to happen. I think the Israelis do. Um, and I don't even think that the Gaza crisis is going to derail that. And so, um, but there's also second order effects to that too, right? If the Saudis move forward uh, normalizing with Israel, there's going to be some blowback inside the kingdom. MBS is trying to make this into Disney World over there. Um, but, but go back to the original AQAP, the group that started in Saudi, right? All those bombings in Riyadh and elsewhere. There's still a pretty hardcore group of, of Wahhabis that aren't going to like what MBS does to that country and likes it even less that, you know, the Saudis are making peace with the Israelis while Palestinians are being killed. So I, I think, you know, some of those old ghosts are going to come back to haunt the region. Uh, they're always there kind of lurking. But I do think those intelligence relationships, the Egyptians, the Jordanians and others in the region, especially because key players are no longer involved there, right? Like the Syrians are off the shelf uh, and, and some others. And so um, particularly when you look at the need to counter Iran, uh, there are some real marriages uh, that need to be sustained in, in that part of the world. 
Yeah, well, thank you for that. I, I, I This is the point in the show where we, we take a break and we say to the folks who are listening uh, who are not members, uh, we've really been glad to have you with us. And we, we think, if you've been listening, that you would probably want to listen to the whole podcast, including the uh, very interesting questions that we are about to pose. Um, but that's members only. So go become a member. Go to the DSRnetwork.com. Uh, click on membership. It's $5 a month. It will not remain $5 a month for much longer, so it's a good time to sign up and join us. And we have some new programming that's going to start in the next couple of weeks, so there'll be even more bonus content. So we encourage you to go and do that. Uh, but for now, if you're not a member, bye-bye. And if you are a member, stand by. 